If you have a Bible, you will want to turn with me now to 1 Samuel chapter 23 as we continue a series of messages on David, a man after God's own heart. And today we're going to be looking at the God who sustains us, and in particular looking at the concept of the providence of God. There was a time when we would name a city like the one that's named in Rhode Island, Providence. Uh, but in our current cultural milieu, that would never happen. And the reason it would never happen is we're not interested in history. We only want to make history. And here's the thing. I expect any day now somebody will come out of a cave somewhere and tell us they've invented the wheel. That's about how bad it is, culturally speaking, in terms of how people view history, and especially the history of our great country, and the history of redemption, which is even much more important, that we're looking at in Scripture today. And David is being pursued by Saul. Saul wants him dead. Consider living under that threat, the most powerful king in the area, with an army at his disposal, with spies and an intelligence network everywhere is pursuing with all of his being a man who has nowhere to lay his head, very much a type of Christ here, pursuing him all over um, the, the nation, trying to find him, back him in a corner and ultimately kill him. And so David has to be stressed out. What we read in 1 Samuel 23 is what is going on outside of David. What we read in Psalm 59 is what's going on inside of David. This guy's stressed out. I mean, he is beyond stress. He's out to kill him. So we pick up the story. This has been going on for at least two or three chapters here. But in chapter 23, we'll read the entire chapter and talk about what uh, we need to see and remember. Now, chapter 23, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Some of us might be very envious at this point of how David asks the Lord a question and he gets an answer back. And, and we're sitting here going, What happened? Where are those days? I will tell you in the balance of time we have together. Uh, and the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. Uh, how much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, arise and go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, who was high priest, remember, who was murdered at the city of Nob by Saul, 
Abiathar escaped, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hands? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Not, not very good news, is it? Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul had told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But notice this next verse. But God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. When the Bible uses the phrase hand, it's always referring to power or strength. And so Jonathan strengthened his hand where? In the, in the word and promises of God, God himself. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. This is the last David ever saw of Jonathan. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh and on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have compassion, had compassion on me. Boy, Saul can get spiritual when the moment arises, doesn't he? Go, make sure, yet, let yet more, make yet more sure, know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he, David, is very cunning. So therefore, and take note of all the lurking places, where he hides and come back to me with sure information then I will go with you if he's in the land I will search him out and uh, among all the thousands of Judah and they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon and Saul and his men went to seek him 
And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry. And come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So David returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that as we look at an ancient story, which may seem to have very little to do, to, uh, to do with us, yet in every way is so incredibly relevant to the next steps we take in our life. And we do pray today that you by your Spirit will speak to us. I'm just a man, a sinful man, a redeemed sinful man, yet you have chosen to call people like me to be your messenger. And I pray that the word would come through clearly. And that the word that you spread and speak forth will not return to you void or empty, but it will accomplish your purposes and it will prosper where you send it. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Anybody who reads the Bible and is coming to chapter 23, fresh from 1 Samuel 21 and 22, can easily note some fascinating contrasts between the king that now is and the king that soon will be. At Nob, Saul is the destroyer of Israel, killing some 85 priests. But here at Keilah, David becomes the savior of Israel. Saul complains that no one discloses urgent matters to him, but God discloses through Abiathar all that David needed to know. Saul's companion is Doeg, the Edomite killer, who covers Saul's hands with blood. David's support is Jonathan, the son, the royal son, who is the son of the king trying to kill him, who strengthens his hand in God. Previously, the Philistines were a dangerous threat to David, and now, in many ways, they are his welcome saviors. David, however, can hardly afford to ponder all these literary contrasts. The man is under pressure. He is a wandering outlaw, and he's running as fast as he can from Saul. His life, every moment, is at risk, and his servants uh, are with him. David needs assurance that Yahweh provides for his servants in their desolate and trying times, and apparently he received it. In Psalm 54, as well as in Psalm 59, in the face of human treachery, David bears witness. This is what he says in Psalm 54. Surely God is my help, and the Lord is the one who sustains me. David knew that God was his refuge. What is a refuge? A refuge is a safe place. It is a place of protection. It's a place we can run to. It's a place we can hide. It's a place where we can feel safe again, where we can feel some measure of peace 
and shalom again. And God himself was for David a refuge. And he is a refuge for you and me as well. He is the place you run to for safety. He is the one who you recognize is your strength, is your redeemer. Um, God is our refuge and strength, Psalm 46 says, a very present help in time of trouble. And David didn't know this just theoretically. He didn't know it by memorizing a scripture verse. He knew it existentially. He lived it out. And he learned what it was for God to be his refuge. You know, sometimes we crave the presence of other people with us, and God does do this in this passage when he sends Jonathan to him. But sometimes we crave so much the presence of other people when in reality what we need to be craving the presence of is God. We need to learn how in stress and overwhelming situations and situations of hardship and difficulty and grief, for they will come, how God can be our refuge and strength. And that is exactly what David learns in this passage. What resources then does God make available to David his servant in his continuing trial? The first one I would claim is access. Access. You know, there's trouble in a city called Keilah. The Philistines were raiding the threshing floor, which means they were making off with the food source which was both frustrating. Uh, Keilah's farmers do all the work and the Philistines get all the goodies and life-threatening. No grain means no food and no bread. Keilah was a fortified town in Judah located a bit uh, over eight miles northwest of Hebron and about three miles south of Agilom. So you know exactly right where it is. No, you don't. That's the difficulty of reading these Old Testament. You feel like you need a huge map. And you name this town, you see it over here. But they're all generally clustered in, let's say, 10 to 15 miles of each other. Someone told David about trouble. Someone is always telling David about trouble, it seems. And the trouble is usually Saul. And both of them, David and Saul, have effective intelligent networks we don't know where David was at the time. He was spotted in the forest, wherever that was, and he's most, uh, David is most willing to counter the Philistine menace and ask directions from Yahweh, and David receives assurance from Yahweh that he would have success against the Philistines. But David's men were not so sure. They're counting numbers. There's 600 of us. We're a ragtag, motley crew, and there's the Philistine army. <laughs> Uh, holding the city. I, David, you might have talked to the Lord and he might have said something to you, but you go talk to him again because things don't look that promising from our point of view. So David and his men, uh, David again seeks direction from the Lord and his men attack the Philistines, cattle, and decis decisively defeat them and save the city of Keilah just as Yahweh had said in his word. Verse 6 constitutes a four-year information note explaining how it was that David could ask direction from Yahweh and get such clear guidance. When Abiathar fled to join David, the ephod came down in his hand. Now, what is this ephod, you may ask? 
And most scholars believe that this ephod was a linen um, clothing that belonged to the high priest. And we know that Abiathar's father had been murdered, and all priests wore an ephod called a linen ephod. But the high priest, his ephod was much more elaborate than the uh, regular priest. Attached to his ephod was the breastplate containing the urim and the thummim, the two stones, associated with receiving revelation from God. We don't know the details of how all this happened, probably because, once again, to the Bible writers, the fact and content of divine revelation were far more important than the mechanism. And I don't want some of you going out here digging up a couple of stones, calling them Urim and Thummim. I mean, I, the only reason I say that to you is because I've done stupid stuff like that. Lord, if I get through these three lights green, then I know your will for me is to... I'm going to open my Bible and do whatever it says. Open my Bible. It says Judah went out, uh, Judas went out and hung himself. Go thou and do likewise. You know, the drop-flop method has never worked. But I do want to talk about how we seek God's guidance in just a moment. But we see how David does it. And he gets a word from the Lord. And Keilah is saved. And David and his men were saved. And Yahweh's guidance through Abiathar's ephod directed David both to go to and get out of Keilah. Everything then hinges on Abiathar and the ephod. By such guidance, David has success both in his attack and his escape. Saul thought he traced the smile of providence because David could easily be cornered in a fortified town. But David had recourse to Abiathar. Verses 10 through 12 probably give us as close a look at ephod guidance as we will ever get. In a moving plea, David asked Yahweh two specific questions, and he received two affirmative answers. David didn't need to ask any more questions. He knew what to do. One can scarcely overestimate the privilege David enjoys in verses 1 through 13, and that is the privilege of access. David's advantage stands opposed to Saul's deficiency because Saul would seek the Lord and seek the word of the Lord and receive nothing because Saul no longer, in the eyes of the Lord, was the king. He had been rejected from being king. But David had access, and he had access to guidance through this appointed priest whom Saul had in reality driven to David's arms. A contemporary believer might look at this passage and say this, I see that, and it's all really, really nice for David. But I don't receive that kind of precise, direct guidance that David did. And I would say to you, neither do I, because I don't need it. And you say, why do you not need it? I am not the chosen king of Israel. It does my ego no damage to concede that David's function in the history of salvation is much more crucial than mine is. The fortunes of the kingdom of Yahweh in this world rest far more on the preservation of someone like David than me. 
What was essential for Yahweh's elect king to have, he received. For me, it is not always so essential. But in principle, there is no difference between this elect king and myself. In what context was Yahweh's guidance given? Was it not in access to God through the appointed priest? And is that not the privilege I enjoy right now as a believer in Jesus Christ? There is a much greater high priest whose name is the Lord Jesus, who is at the right hand of the Father, and I enjoy access to him. And through him, access to God. Hold your finger in Samuel and turn over to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. And let me assure you of some wonderful promises you yourself can lay hold of and live by. Hebrews chapter 4. And beginning in verse 14. Since then, we, that's talking about believers in Jesus Christ, have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and then he tells us who it is. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then draw near, come with confidence, and draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and uh, find grace to help in time of need. You have access that is every bit and even more than David ever had. You have to understand that your Savior is not simply someone who did something in the past to save you. He is someone presently at the right hand of the Father working and serving as your priest before God holding up his wounds before God, telling him, I died for that sin. I died for that person. I bore the ra your wrath on their behalf, responding to God, bringing our requests to him, pleading for them in a way that won't destroy us because he loves us more than we will ever know. Jesus, right now, is intensely, personally, and practically engaged in your life. If you think no one is praying for you, you are wrong. I know at least two members of the Godhead who are praying for you every day. The Holy Spirit who dwells within you prays through groans that cannot be uttered for our weaknesses and our struggles in times of suffering and hardship. But the Lord Jesus himself prays for you. He is a living Savior. That's what the resurrection is all about. The ascension is all about. The, the presence of Christ in a glorified body at the right hand of God, some location. He is there pleading his sacrifice, uh, providing us grace and mercy and comfort and help in time of need. And when you are hurting and when you are wondering what to do next, remember you have access. Remember you have the promises of God. Never forget that. The old Puritans used to say, here's what you need to do when you pray. You need to sue God. That's a legal term, a lawsuit. You need to sue God. And I thought, what a terrible thing to say. How arrogant and abrupt can you be? But to sue God is to simply take his promises into his presence and say, Lord, you said, in David's case, 
I'm anointed to be king and there will always be a Davidic king on the throne. You said that to me. And you cannot lie. Now bring it to pass. And you say, well, that's rather bold. Well, God calls for that kind of boldness from us. Take his promises. Take his word. You know, don't try to figure it out on your own. Don't try to draw from your own experience and resources. There are times where the best place in the universe you can be is on your knees pleading to your faithful great high priest to take care of you and provide you what you need now to know. And what a glorious thing we enjoy as believers. Well, you need to listen a little faster so we can get through. Uh, next page, or next point. <laughs> Both next page and next point. Uh, we look at preservation. Um, and actually by preservation, I mean encouragement and sustaining power. Um, and then in third point will be providence where we'll talk about both. But uh, what a wonderful thing that uh, we have a great high priest and we come to the throne of grace and find grace and help at just the right time. And notice it's grace. It doesn't say a throne of law, which is basically how most of us think about approaching God. Have I done enough? Have I been a good enough Christian this week to pray? Have I not committed any big, fat, juicy, technicolor sins? Have I not lied to anybody? Have I, have I tried to love God the best I can and my neighbor the best I can? Then and then only will I feel confident to approach the throne of grace. And I'm telling you, if you think like that, you don't understand grace. Grace is antithetical to that. It's polar opposite of that. Grace is... If I ever tried to go to the throne of God in my own name and not in the name of the one who redeemed me, I would be laughed out and a word would never be heard from me. But we as Christians have the a privilege of praying in the name of Christ, which basically is saying, Lord, don't look at me. I, I could never walk into your presence and not be consumed by your fire, which you are. But look at Jesus. Look at my Savior. Look at the one who lived for me and died for me and rose again for me and ascended for me and is at your right hand for me. Look at him and hear me. And you have that right as a child of God, as a son and daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have that right through grace. <laughs> now, Verses 14 through 18 is sort of a brief chunk of information, a general summary, a particular episode. And the summary gives us David's location, the wilderness of Ziph. The site of Ziph was about four miles southeast of Hebron. David then is very deep into the territory of Judah, and he's losing himself in the wilderness area east of Ziph. But more importantly, this summary tells us David of David's preservation in all the topography and geography David's preservation occurs though he may uh, uh, escape Saul uh, he never escapes the shelter of the Most High Saul sought him constantly but God did not give him into his hands and the text wraps its arm around all of David's outlaw experience but if Saul did not find David Jonathan sure could. 
And Jonathan comes to him as an encourager. Now, one of the great ministries you have as the body of Christ, the Scripture tells us it's ridiculous to avoid. You shouldn't catch yourself avoiding the coming together, together with the saints on worship day, on the Lord's day, because we encourage one another because of sin and because of the hardness of the heart. You absent yourself from the worship of the people of God, as uh, Josh mentioned earlier, you absent yourself from that, that causes a person's heart to harden. And because we live in a sin-infected, infested world, because we are living in a culture and world that is unclean and always has been, when we come together with the people of God, we are encouraged by the presence of each other. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. We admonish one another. We encourage one another. We say words to lift up and edify one another. We hug each other. We touch each other. Why? Because we need it. We need it. We're human beings in the image of God. And we need that kind of love and support. You know, people always say to me, well, I don't, I don't want to come to worship. And I'll say, well, tell me truly why you don't want to come to worship. Because I don't get anything out of it. And you know what I say to that, don't you? Worship is not about you getting anything out of anything. Worship is about you giving something. You seeing who God is and you giving him what is worth, and because of that, you seek to give others. So often in our navel-gazing, self-absorbed, narcissistic <laughs> age, we think we're consumers, and, and that church itself is like a big, fat Walmart. And you can come here, if you're blue-collar, let's say. Some of you go to Whole Foods, I guess. But you go... And you get what you need and what you want. And if the church dispenses uh, a feel-good vibe for you and you meet a few people who you think maybe they could be our friends because they're enough like us, then I'll just come back and come back and come back. Only as long as I'm getting my heart filled with what I want. But have you ever thought about coming to church and asking yourself the question, who can I encourage today? Who can I give to? Who can I... Who can I see? And not just the people who enhance my reputation because they are cool. I only say that because you know I've struggled with that my whole life. I tell you all the time, I'm, I have a big fat ego. And I, I'm all about promoting me. And if you're not cool, why would I talk to you? You don't add anything to my pleasure. You said, that's awful, Pastor. You shouldn't even be a preacher. You're right. I shouldn't. But God called me, and let me, let me tell you, he takes me to the woodshed often. He does. But what about that? David is brought to the wilderness, and Jonathan comes. Jonathan, the son, the heir apparent to the throne, recognizes that David has been anointed to be king. Here he says something he's never said before. I'll be your second in command. And by the way, David, my father knows this. He knows it. He's not blindly chasing you for stupid reasons. He knows you are his ultimate threat. And so he encourages him. He lifts him up. Personal presence is encouraging. 
But there's something even better than personal presence, something even better than cuddling with one another, and that is the promises of God. And that's what, Je- that's what Jonathan, in his encouragement, reminds the person of. And this has happened to me so many times in my life. When I've been down and the Lord has sent a certain person to me, let me tell you something. When you bring me counsel, I doubt there's anything you could ever say that I haven't said to someone else or thought about or whatever. But you know what happens when you come to me in the Spirit of God and share that word of encouragement with me? It comes alive in my being. It, it lights me up. You know, I do all the preaching. I don't get to do much listening. Now, that's not an invitation <laughs> for all of you to take it upon yourselves to tell me how I can be better. But I want to tell you, I need to hear the word and promises of God as much as anyone in this building, more so. The older I get, the longer I've been around, I know the only foundation I can stand upon is thus saith the Lord. You know, when I went to seminary, I did not say the word Seth. You know why? Because I'm a southern boy. And southern boys, we grow up in church, it's saith, not Seth. And I remember I had a woman in my preaching classes uh, named Buey Bowden, and she was a television anchor and then trained other anchors how not to sound like hicks on television. <laughs> and so she watched one of my sermons one day and asked me to come in her office. And she said, pronounce the word P-R-I-D-E. I said, pride. She said, no, it's pride. She said, you're too good to say it that way. That's why I liked her. Because she would say stuff like that. But she got her point across. But it is thus saith the Lord. That's what you can count on. That's what you can believe. That's why we preach the Bible to you every week. To supply you and equip you for how to know where to go, what you need. And so God provides that through Jonathan. But then Jonathan leaves and David never sees him again. But what a wonderful uh, opportunity. Let's move to the third point because I do want to say a little bit more about it than I did the other two. I want us to look at the providence of God in verses 19 to 28. Um, This was a very solemn time, preface to this. When Jonathan leaves and goes to his house, he went home, he had accomplished his mission, he strengthened his hand in God, And Jonathan is not the presence David ultimately needs. He needs more. Yahweh grants a display of his providence to his hard-pressed servant in the face of a nearly fatal betrayal. These people that David goes in and provides help and salvation for turn on him on a dime. Which my father once told me, he said, being a preacher, he said, people will tell you you're great. Oh, you're a wonderful preacher and cut you down to size at lunch. Never forget that. They will. They'll turn on a dime. Now, I know none of you do that, but I've heard about people doing that, cutting you down to size. But lo lo and behold, here we are. We're we're in a real kind of nail-biter incident. But Saul is now in full pursuit, and you can almost feel his horses breathing down your neck 
David is on one side of the mountain, Saul is on the other side of the mountain, and Saul is gaining ground. And I'm sure David's at the point of panic palace. He doesn't know what to do. And his men were in a hurry. Saul is tightening the noose. David and his men were hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David to seize them. And sympathetic Bible readers sometimes close their eyes at this point. They refuse to watch the capture, humiliation, and likely death. Uh-oh, what? What's coming? All of a sudden, a messenger comes to Saul and says, Quick, come on. For the Philistines have made a raid upon the land. So Saul turned back from pursuing David. You see it, don't you? Saul and his men were closing in on David, but a messenger came. God uses a godless people, the Philistines, to save his anointed king. (laughs) You don't think God's in control of all that is? You don't think God orders our steps? You don't think God knows the end from the beginning? Here he displays, as it were, for David, his work of providence, what some people call his strange work of providence. These verses teach us what providence means. And when you think about the word providence in the Holy Scriptures, I don't think the term is ever specifically used, But in the Latin Vulgate, the word for providence is basically a compound Latin term. It is two words. Providence is pro, meaning before or for or in front of. And the last part of the word providence is videri, which means to see. God sees before us. God sees in front of us. God sees now. And God provides what is needed in that occasion. One of the reasons you need to read the Shorter Catechism is it has the best concise definitions of terms you and I need to understand. And so the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11, if creation was a unique exercise of divine energy, well, excuse me, let me read the quote from... uh, Westminster, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That's what the providence of God is. And it it is exhausting, uh, exhausting and exhaustive. (laughs) It is exhaustive. It touches everything. If creation was a unique exercise of divine energy causing the world to be, that is, there was nothing God spoke and out of nothing brought creation into existence, ordered it, formed it, filled it, rested on the seventh day and declared it all good. But God not only creates all that is, but he continues to sustain all it is by keeping his creatures in being by involving himself in all events, by directing all things to their appointed end. The model is of a purposive personal management with royal hands-on control. God is completely in charge of his world. His hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. Some have uh, have, uh, restricted God's providence to foreknowledge without control or upholding without intervention or general oversight without concern for details. But the testimony to providence as formulated 
is overwhelming in the Bible. The Bible teaches that God's providential control is over the universe at large, over the physical world, over the brute creation, over the affairs of nation, over man's birth and lot and life, over the outward successes and failures of men's lives, over things seemingly accidental or insignificant, in the protection of the righteous, in the supplying of the wants of his people, in giving answers to prayer, in the exposure and punishment of the wicked. I mean from stem to stern, it's there. All of it. Now, if you're a thinking person, you're going to sit there and go, but there's some things that have happened in my life I don't like. I didn't tell you you would like it. But you know what? Who is it that oversees the whole universe? My Father. My perfect, wise, holy, unable to sin or act injudiciously, who is totally just, totally righteous, totally kind, totally filled with the fullness of God, who rules over the universe. He is my Papa. He is my Abba Father. Who is it that executes these things in the world? Jesus, who is my Savior, my brother, my friend, the best friend I will ever know. And who is it that executes God's presence in space and time? The Holy Spirit, the triune God, who set me apart to belong to him before the foundation of the world. That's who is watching over me and taking care of me. So the next time you're sweating it, next time you don't know what to do, remember who it is with whom you have to do. Remember who it is that's over all control. And I will tell you in your life, you're going to run up against things and you're going to say, I cannot possibly see. I take this to the Lord and try to sue him with verses. But I, walk, I take it to the Lord and say, I cannot possibly see how in this world this should be happening to me or my friend or my family or uh, uh, my extended family or my church or my best friends. Why is this happening? But I go to the Word and I take the promises of God and I know who it is with whom I have to do and I rest. But think of it this way. If God is not sovereign and if he doesn't control the universe, then who in the world does? And what kind of hope is there for you in that? Nothing. So while we all experience what theologians have called bitter providence and sweet providence, we will know when we see him face to face all of what he has done and why. And so there's so much more to say, and that's why we have next Sunday, right? So you think about it. David and this incident in his life speaks to me, and it speaks to you. Because the same thing David dealt with was the same thing Jesus dealt with and the same thing Jesus promised we as his church will deal with. And so this word speaks to us today. Now would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, it is surgical in its precision. 
to cut our hearts, to do surgery, spiritual surgery on us, to expose us and ourselves, to help us see and become humbled in your presence because you are God and we are not. You are in control and we are not. You love us far better than we love you. I don't know how you put up with us, but you do. And you never stop. And you will have your will and your way with us all. And now, Father, we pray as we continue to worship you, we would give as adoring children a portion of what you've entrusted us back to you so that you may use it to accomplish wonderful things in this world that honor you and are for our good. In this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.